0: Matthew chapter 24 would be a good starting place. We're going to be uh, in various places in the scripture, but Matthew 24 will be a good starting place for us. Um, I want to tell you about an author. I'll give the disclaimer that I don't have any stock in his publishing company, so uh, there's no direct benefit, but I think, uh, I think he's a good read. Joel Rosenberg is a, uh, I, I guess we in the evangelical community tend to call him an evangelical Jew or a messianic Jew, meaning that he is, uh, he is a Jewish man who has come to faith in Christ, so he is completed. And uh, he has written a number of novels. If you like thriller novels along the order of Tom Clancy, uh, I think that you'll find his novels to be very exciting. They all center around events in the Middle East and uh, the end of time, but uh, he bases his, um, his fiction work on what he sees and understands from the political arena. Uh, he has been involved in politics in our country, uh, serving, uh, I think, in the campaign of George W. Bush and also uh, serving for, uh, in the uh, publicity campaign of one of the Israeli prime ministers. So he's uh, worked on both sides of the ocean in that regard. And this book, Epicenter, that he has written is a non fiction work. It is the foundation of political events and prophetic events that have given him the backdrop in which his novels are cast. And uh, the book has a lot of value in addition to uh, some of the things that are on the verge of happening or are happening in the Middle East and around Jerusalem and Palestine. At the end of the book, he has interviews with some of Israel's top leadership. And because of his uh, association with them, uh, he has been granted these personal interviews, and they are very insightful. I think they're worth the, the price of the book. So I just want to let you know that this is out there. And um, one of his latest nonfiction works has to do with the revival that is taking a place among Muslims. Um, many are coming to faith in Christ because of Dreams and visions that they are having, that the Lord is giving them, corroborating the gospel message that they have heard. I think sometimes, you know, we, we have a tendency to to say, well, you know, is it necessary to preach the gospel? Why can't God send angels? Yes, it is necessary to preach the gospel to tell people about Jesus. But how do you how do you win a Muslim to faith in Christ? They're so uh, focused on their own. Um, Uh, you know, uh, religious beliefs, and what is happening is God is corroborating the witness and testimony of of missionaries and witnesses with dreams and visions that are convincing uh, a a growing number of Muslims to turn to faith, and his latest book has to do with that, so that's um, well worth uh, looking into, too. It's It's a revival that we may not be aware is going on in our world today. The other thing I want to say this morning by way of preparation to the message is, as we spend the next several weeks together, to this Sunday, the 21st, the 28th, the 21st, I'm going to be dealing with actually the return of Jesus Christ, His second coming, as prophesied in the Minor Prophets. And then on the 28th, I'm going to be dealing with the Millennial Kingdom, as prophesied in the Minor Prophets. Uh, those of you that have been around for a long time know that I typically don't preach on prophecy. Um, there are uh, reasons for that, but God has clearly led me to do that at this point in time. But there are dangers. And some of the dangers when we get uh, focused in on prophecy, uh, I think some of the risks that, that evangelicals run when they begin to move in this direction is, um, one of them is just getting all absorbed in uh, the, the, the fanciful uh, ideas of how things are going to unfold and and trying to uh, figure out timetables and sort out the specifics of events and how all of this stuff is going to transpire. And if we get all absorbed in that, sometimes people forget they have a Christian life to live. Uh, you know, they get all focused on the, the tantalizing and the ideology, and they forget that we're called uh, every day to be witnesses in the world, and that uh, following Jesus is not totally focused on his return, but it includes living for him every single day. And that leads me to my second point, which is a danger, and Paul wrote two whole letters in the New Testament to a church that went overboard on this error. If you read the Thessalonian letters, you realize that one of the things Paul is trying to do is bring balance. Because they had gotten so excited about the return of Jesus Christ that Paul conveyed to them that some of them decided it's not worth working anymore. It's not worth getting involved in life. We're just going to quit everything we're doing and wait for Jesus. Well... As you know, because it's been a couple thousand years, he didn't come back right away. And they were waiting. And what do you do when you don't have a job and you don't have other things you're doing? Well, when you have time on your hands, you get involved in other people's business. And they were meddling and they were busybodies and they were creating trouble in the church. And Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and he said, look a man's not working. Don't let him eat. If he's not, if he's not willing to pull his own freight, if he's capable and he's not working, then don't let him eat. A man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. You need to, you need to uh, get these people going again because one of the risks is if you get so focused on the return of Christ that you forget about living every day, then you actually become of no earthly good. And I think this is particularly true uh, th- the younger you are. There's more of a tendency when you begin to, to get absorbed with prophecy, and I have to admit, I, I mean, I've been immersing myself in this for the last few weeks, and it's like, wow, this could happen really, really soon. You know, this, this, could, this could be right around the corner. Um, so what am I supposed to do? Well, the answer is, Keep doing what God has called you to do. You know, if you're in college, stay in college. If you're working on a degree, work on your degree. If you're in a job, work your job. If you have a hobby, do your hobby. If you have a family, take care of your family. Um, be involved in life. Because it's as you're involved in the areas that God has, has called you, that you bring light into the darkness. And Jesus said, among other things, Occupy until I come. In other words, hold your ground and work for the night is coming when man's work is done. There is coming a time when we can sit back and enjoy the presence of Jesus personally. Until that moment, we are called to be at the task. And so God has not given us this information about the end of times, in order for us to, to, to lose focus about life and get totally absorbed in the second coming, to the extent that, you know, we walk around the streets of McHenry with a sign, the end is near. You know, you're not going to win very many people to Christ that way. He's given it to us so that we're not surprised at the unfolding of world events. He's given it to us so that we are not deceived. He's given us this information so that we can live as enlightened people who are prepared. But He has not given it to us to distract us from getting married, having children, raising a family, having a job, going about our daily business, because it is in the context of life, that we rub shoulders with other people and have the opportunity to influence them for Jesus Christ. And so we have to live within this dynamic tension that Jesus is coming back. And it may be soon. But until He does, I am called with my mind expecting Him to work this day at the task And and things He's given me. So that in my life, I can have an influence in the people around me. And to be responsible. And to accept my duties. And to do them well as unto the Lord. Because those are the things that make a difference on a daily basis. Now, when we come to uh, understanding what the minor prophets have to say. This morning, I want to focus on the restoration of Israel that's the theme of today's study but in doing that i want you to turn in your bibles to matthew chapter 24 look at verse 1 matthew chapter 22 or 24 verse 1 as jesus came out from the temple he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him now this is the last week of Jesus' earthly life uh, in in the natural realm. He is in Jerusalem. In this final week, he, he is teaching every day in the temple. He is preparing His disciples for His crucifixion and resurrection and eventual ascension. They're going to be carrying out the work. And so this is kind of the week that He's pouring everything into them. and and bringing it all into focus for them. And as they're leaving the temple, and this is Herod's temple, and it's quite a structure, huge stones, beautiful palatial structure, they're pointing this out. Jesus, have you ever seen anything as amazing as this? And Jesus says to them in verse 2, and he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, Not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And will mislead many. Look at verse 24. Or verse 23. There, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. Now, this is important for us, okay? We in this room, as far as I know, most of you, if not all of us, are followers of Jesus Christ. He's talking to his followers. He's saying to them, if someone comes to you and says, I've seen the Messiah. I've seen the Christ. Here he is. Let's go look. Automatically, you know they're a liar. Okay, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is not going to come back without you personally knowing it. He's coming back for you. So, He's not going to sneak in somewhere, and you hear about it, you know, in some 2 a.m. program on TV. Oh, we found the Messiah. He's going to be here on our program next week. That's not going to happen. And one of the reasons Jesus gave His disciples this information was so they would not be misled. He said, I do not want you to be misled. So he said, if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance, if, therefore, they say to you, he's in the wilderness, don't go. Bo- don't bother to go out there. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, verse 24 gives us some interesting insight, because I want to tell you the truth. In the United States today... We have a hard time discerning between success and spiritual truth in in just the ordinary realm. You follow what I'm saying? We have a tendency to look at ministries that are doing well, that have lots of money, that are accomplishing great things, We have a tendency to look and say, God must be with them. They must be doing the work of the Lord. That must be God's work. We seldom, and I'm not making any characterizations of any particular ministry, I'm just saying in general, we tend to equate the blessing and and authenticity of God... With success. And when we do that, we fail to discern between truly spiritual work, which is oftentimes not outwardly successful, and that which appears to be spiritual because it's successful. But Jesus said of the church at Laodicea, you say we are rich and wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are blind, and naked, and in need of a great deal. My point is that right now today in the United States, many believers can't figure out what's true and what's false, even in the natural world. What are they going to do when the false prophets come and heal the sick and raise the dead and appear to cast out demons and appear to work miracles and turn the water into wine and make the Chicago River run with blood, I don't know, when they actually do miracles in the name of God? And they do those things, and we say, oh, that must be of the Lord. They're going to do signs and wonders. They're going to effect miracles. They're, going, they're not going to come and say, I'm doing this miracle in the power of Satan. Everybody watch me. Duh. He comes as an angel of light. There's not going to be any sign that says this is satanic. It's going to look like it's of God. Jesus said, I don't want you to be deceived. If anybody claims to be the Messiah, you automatically know they're not. Just put it down, you know they're not. If anybody claims to be a prophet, but does not preach this word exactly as it's written, you know they're not. They're a false prophet. I don't care what miracles they do. Well, you don't have to. Jesus Christ is just one way. He's a great prophet. He's a great prophet. Did you know that um, radical Shia Muslims believe that Jesus Christ is the second lieutenant to to Muhammad? And that he is going to uh, come back and accompany and be uh, the right hand of, of the... Of the 12th Imam or, or the, the, uh, the Mahdi, their coming Messiah. So you may find somebody that says, oh, Jesus is a wonderful prophet, great man, powerful man, anointed of God. No, 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 no. <laughs> is he God? Is he the only way to life eternal? Why well, I'm not saying that, but look at these miracles I'm doing. No, 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 you're doing them by the power of Satan. You see, that's the test. Who is Jesus? So Jesus says, "I want you to understand this stuff so that you will not be deceived." And I'm preaching it this morning so that you will not be deceived. I do not want you to be misled by the things that transpire in the next years or decades, that you may see with your eyes, understand the Word of God. And then Jesus says, and this begins in verse 32, Now learn a parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, that you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all of these things, Now, he's been talking about a lot of stuff. He's been talking about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and false prophets and false messiahs. He says, when you see this this plethora of things that will be coming, you will know this. And then he says, in the parable of the fig tree, when you see the, the fig tree Becoming tender in the spring and putting forth leaves, you know that summer's near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that Jesus, that He is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away and all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Of the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone And and then he says, it'll be like the days of Noah. Now, in this passage, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm telling you how you can judge the times. And and remember their question, Lord, tell us when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So he says, okay, I'm going to tell you. This group of things is going to happen. But when you see the fig tree begin to put forth its branches and begin to to spread out in the springtime, you know that summer's coming, there's about to be a fruitful harvest. Learn that parable, because when you see the fig tree begin to blossom, you know that the coming is near. And, And he says, this generation will not pass away until all of this has been fulfilled. Now, what is the fig tree? In the Old Testament in at least two of the prophecies, as well as other places. But there are at least two prophecies that, that tell us that the fig tree is a metaphor for Israel. And one of them specifically tells us that the blossoming or growth of the fig tree is, is a metaphor for the restoration of Israel as a nation. Look at Hosea 9.10. This is on your study guide. If you have your Bibles, you can turn on your Bible... Or I've printed it for you in your study guide. In Hosea nine ten, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its season. In other words, God is saying this is what Israel was like to me. It was like a fig tree with the first fruits. I mean, Israel was like my my cultivated fig tree, but. They came to Baal Pure and devoted themselves to shame and they became as detestable as the thing that they loved. Now, Hosea is saying that Israel was unfaithful, but he likens her to the fig tree with the first fruits. Jeremiah in chapter 24, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs. Now, what he's done is he's given Jeremiah a vision. Of two uh, pots containing figs, one good figs and one bad figs. And he says, So I will regard the good, as good, the captives of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. This is speaking of the Babylonian captivity. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them up and not overthrow them. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. Now, you don't know this yet because I have to preach it next Sunday. But this latter part of this verse is the prophecy when Israel is going to be restored to faith in their Messiah, in Jesus Christ. But notice that he says in this prophecy, I will bring them again to the land and build them up and not overthrow. I will plant them and not pluck them up. When Israel returned after the Babylonian captivity, 500 years later, Rome ransacked them again. And for the last 2,000 years, Israel's been scattered all over the face of the earth. So what Jeremiah is talking about is not the return from captivity under the Chaldeans and Babylonians. Jeremiah is talking about a future return and restoration from which Israel will never again be dislodged. There will be a time when Israel is restored, the planting of the Lord, and Jeremiah says it will be like good figs. I'm going to plant this fig tree again, and and it's going to blossom and bear good figs. Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree because it's a marker of the end of the age. When you see the fig tree beginning to put forth its branches and and to blossom and grow, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see this happen, and in the context of Jeremiah, it is the second restoration of Israel. When you see this happening, know that he is near. And then he says this very interesting phrase, and I will tell you honestly, there's disagreement on what it means. Okay, so, so don't try to nail me down on this, because I'm, I'm going to be open-minded enough to allow for some, some give and take here. But Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. The generation that sees the planting and growth of the fig tree. Now, in May 15, 1948, Israel was recognized by the United Nations as an independent sovereign nation for the first time in approximately 2,000 years. Her land was established and her borders defended in the Six-Day War in 1967. And since that time, Israel has been growing as a nation with an influx of Jewish people from all over the world. Undoubtedly, this is the fig tree that Jesus was referring to. The only question is, what does the word generation mean? Some uh, linguists and biblical scholars believe that it it can, can also refer to the race. The Jewish race will not pass away. But if you interpret it literally... What it basically means is, if we take the literal interpretation, is that from the time we saw the fig tree begin to blossom or begin to grow, there will be people who are born in that time that will not die before the return of Jesus Christ. So if you were to take it in that sense of the word, Jesus could come back, according to, from the nation of Israel's perspective as their Messiah, he could return within the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So we could be living in the generation that sees the return of Jesus Christ. And if you were born anywhere between, say, 1948 and 1965, you may be alive. When Jesus comes again. (laughs) Yeah. So, depending on how we understand the word generation, I say that so that we understand that at no time in history have we been poised on the threshold of the return of Christ as clearly as we are today. And whether it's today or In my lifetime or within the next 50 years, I don't know. But certainly what we do see is that there is a convergence of events occurring that bring us to a place where we are seeing biblical prophecy fulfilled right before our eyes. And we may indeed be living in these final decades So, what do the minor prophets have to say about the restoration of Israel that was not applicable to the return from Babylonian captivity? Now, remember, in our study of the minor prophets, particularly those pre exilic and exilic prophets that talked about Babylon and everything, you recall that all of them said, for the most part, that Israel, that Judah, the southern kingdom, was going to be carried away to Babylon and after 70 years would come back again and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. So a lot of their prophecy had to do with the restoration of Jerusalem and Israel, of Judah, in the return of the exiles. But we need to recognize in those prophecies that when... The the Jews came back to Jerusalem, they never possessed the land as sovereigns. They were always under, they were a subject people underneath the rulership of another empire. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, they were never in charge of their own territory. Even when Jesus was on the earth, the Jews existed in Palestine under Roman imperial rule. They were not sovereign. The other thing we need to recognize is, even though Israel was restored according to the promises of God after the Babylonian captivity, she was driven out again by the Romans in A.D. 70. Seventy-two, to be exact, but she was driven out again. So she did not permanently possess the land. She was never in charge, and she didn't stay. She got dispersed throughout all the world again. So, what about these prophecies? And I've given you four of them from Joel, Micah, Amos, and Zechariah. Let me just highlight the portions that I have italicized and underlined. That's my highlighting for you. In Joel, and by the way, when you get home and you're studying this on your own, you need to read all the verses I have referenced. Because when you read the context of the whole section, you will see that it unmistakably points to a future time. That it's talking about end-time events. But in Joel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, "...for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem..." Verse 17, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Now, in other words, strangers will not occupy or or trample over the territory. That has never occurred until now. And even now... There's still some division, but Israel never enjoyed the sovereign control of Jerusalem. So this prophecy of Joel has to be future. Furthermore, he says, verse 20 and 21, but Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. Clearly the restoration that Joel was talking about in chapter 3 is yet to come Because Israel was driven out again. And we've seen that in our own times. In Micah chapter 4, in verse 7, he says, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. When has the Lord reigned over Israel From now on and forever. We haven't seen that. This is a future event. Or or a now contemporary event. In Amos chapter 9. and Beginning in verse 15. I will also plant them on their land. And they will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them. They were rooted out by the Romans. So this is not talking about the return from Babylon. This is talking about a future time when the Israelites will come back to Jerusalem and they will never be rooted out again. They will stay there permanently. And Zechariah chapter 8, and I want to highlight verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So these minor prophets speak to us of a restoration of Israel that when this restoration occurs, the Jews will never be driven from the land again. They will abide there permanently. They will eventually come to spiritual awakening. And God himself will dwell in the midst of them. And they will occupy the land that was given to Abraham forever. We looked at that last week in the covenants of Abraham and God's covenant with him. And that land in those days will not just be the immediate vicinity of Palestine. But God promised Abraham a territory that extends from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, from Egypt to Baghdad. That whole territory will belong to Israel. And God will reign in the midst of her. When has this ever happened in human history? You see, so, so this restoration is a future event. And the minor prophets foretold this. There are some other references in some of the major prophets that I want to call your attention to. Isaiah 11, verses 11 and 12, and and I encourage you to read the whole 11th chapter of Isaiah. We're actually going to be dealing with it two weeks from today more extensively. But then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people. Well, what was the first time? Babylon. But this is the second time he will recover the remnant of his people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Now, that's Isaiah's way of saying from way out yonder. Now, when the Jews went to Babylon, they went to Babylon. But here he says he's going to bring them back from the islands of the sea. In other words, all over the planet, God is going to bring them back a second time and assemble the banished ones. He will lift them up as a standard for the nations, assemble the banished ones of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's interesting in um, the end of this book, and i see if I can find it real quickly for you um, Rosenberg interviews Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel uh, in the end, and he asks Netanyahu an interesting question. He says to him, do you think that the restoration of the Jews to Palestine is a direct result of divine intervention and biblical prophecy? Well, Netanyahu is not a committed Orthodox Jew. He holds the tradition of Jewish heritage, but he's not a committed Orthodox Jew. And so, so he answers this question in a very interesting way. He says, There is no question that faith and inspiration has had something to do with our return, because throughout human history, Nations and cultures have arisen and been dispersed again and the people have basically been uh, filtered out throughout other peoples of the earth and they've never been heard of again. But nowhere in the history of the world has a people maintained their bloodline for 4,000 years and eventually returned to their homeland and recovered their ancient language and reestablished their culture and nationality in the history of the world. This is more than just political ambition. You see, even, even unbelieving Jewish leaders perceive that there's something extraordinary going on here. And Isaiah says that he will bring his people back from the four corners of the world and bring them to the place of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3, the Scripture says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return, and be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. And I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. I also ask you, when in history has God destroyed completely all the nations where the Jews have been scattered? But we are told in biblical prophecy that in the end times, all the nations will eventually gather toward Jerusalem and Palestine To annihilate the Jewish nation. Some people are conspiracy theorists and they think human beings are behind the conspiracy. That's a little nutty. There is no secret group running this planet uh, in collusion behind the, the politics of individual nations. But there is a conspiracy, masterminded by the prince of the powers of the air, the devil himself, who is the small g, the god of this world, and he is inspiring and driving the nations of the world. He, he exists in his minions in every congress, every parliament, every king's palace, There are unseen counselors suggesting and urging and guiding and there is a hatred for the Jews that defies explanation except that they hate God. And one day... All the nations of the planet will gather for the purpose of the final annihilation of the Jewish people. We're going to get rid of them forever. Get them off our backs and off the planet and and do away with them. And in that moment, the scripture says that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to come to fight for them. No one will be more surprised in that moment than Israel when they see their Messiah breaking through the heavens. But the nations of the world will be destroyed that have gathered against Israel. All of those lands where she has been dispersed through all of these centuries. Perhaps the most interesting prophecy of all Uh, at least for many people, and I find it quite fascinating, is in Ezekiel chapter 37, in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. This captured my heart when I was about 17 years old, and it's remained one of those marvelous and fascinating passages for me ever since. Ezekiel chapter 37 I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is not printed in your outline. You have to look in your Bibles for this. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them roundabout. and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Now, Ezekiel is having a vision from God. God is showing him something. It's, it's, it's figurative, but it's visionary. Imagine yourself, say, out on the salt flats, as far as the eye can see, and all around you the desert floor is littered with human bones, dry and hard, and, and separated. They're, they're just bones scattered everywhere. And this is what Ezekiel sees. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Now, Ezekiel has had some experience with God by this time. (laughs) And so he says, oh, Lord God, you know whether they can live. They don't look like it to me, but you know whether they can live again. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you you, and make your flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come to life and you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Imagine Ezekiel seeing this vision, you know, and now the knee bone is connected to the shin bone, which is connected to the ankle bone, which is connected to the foot bone, and all of a sudden these Bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. (laughs) These bones are coming together. And then they're growing cartilage and ligament and muscles and skin. And now there's bodies lying all over the desert floor. And he said to me again, prophesy to the wind or the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, so they might come to life. By the way, the same Hebrew word is the word for spirit, the spirit of God, the ruach, the breath of God. Come upon them. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Now, Ezekiel has had this vision. Now this army is standing alive. And then God says, Son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is perished, we are cut off. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel that you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. That's all the places of the earth where they've been scattered. And they're dead in their spirit. But God says, I'm going to call you out of all those places. I'm going to bring you back together. I'm going to bring you to my place. And I'm going to fill you with my spirit. you will come to life. And I will put you on your own land. And you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel saw beyond the restoration of Israel to the time when she would also come to life. Next week we're going to focus actually on the second coming of Jesus Christ, primarily from Zechariah, and see what he says about what it will be like when Christ comes back. But God has promised not only to restore His people, Israel, to the land of promise, but He has also said they would come to life spiritually. We're going to see that there is a time called the time of the Gentiles when the gospel message rejected by the house of Israel was carried, first of all, by the Apostle Paul, predominantly to the Gentile nations. And for most of these last 1900 years, the gospel has spread around the world to Gentiles who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there will come a time when the time of the Gentiles is closing, and it will be Israel's time again to... Come to life spiritually. And the Bible says that one day they will see their Messiah. Zechariah says they will look on him whom they pierced and they will believe. Today, the nation of Israel is recollected, regathered, and they're being restored. A small nation, they are incredibly tenacious. And remarkably victorious, as God has given them amazing uh, resolve and blessing. And she is surviving. But Israel is still dead spiritually, for all intents and purposes. But one day, her Messiah will come back. Our King of Kings, our Lord Jesus, the Bridegroom for whom we long, but for Israel her messiah and she will see him and when she does she will believe all living jews will become persuaded that jesus christ is indeed their messiah the one they missed but now he's come for them and they will believe and come to life and join the followers of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. God has a plan, and we are living in those exciting times when the nation of Israel has been restored. I don't know when that generation will begin or end. I cannot say this morning that Jesus Christ will come back in our lifetime, but I can say that we are living in a very unusual period of history The Bible does not speak of a third restoration or a fourth. It only speaks of a second. And we are living in the days of the second restoration. We are seeing Israel come together. And this is a sign that Jesus is soon to follow. That he is coming soon. And as I said at the beginning of my message, the point of this Is that we would have hope that we will not be surprised by the unfolding events of history, that the next time some catastrophic event occurs, we will not be greatly shaken because we know that we are simply moving that much closer to the time when Jesus comes again. Until then, be faithful. In what God has called you to do. Do your work. Go to your job. Go to your club. You know, the right kind of club. Do your hobbies. Rub shoulders with unbelievers. Shine the light of Jesus. Point people to Christ. As events unfold, God will direct you day by day in what you ought to be doing. You cannot go wrong by being faithful today in the little things that he's given you. Because he says, if you are faithful in a little bit, he will give you much more. And if you demonstrate that faithfulness, then he will increase your opportunities and responsibility. Don't be like the Thessalonians. Quit your job. Take up a sign, go sit on the hill, the end is near, and meddle with everybody. Be diligent, but keep your eye on the times Jesus is coming back. Father, thank you for your word. Open our hearts to receive it and to believe it, and magnify and honor Jesus Christ. I pray through our lives. Amen.